Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20? And let's begin with prayer this morning. Father, we call this a worship service, and truly we have lifted up our voices in song, and we've worshipped you, but our worship continues in, in our attitude toward what your Holy Spirit would say through the Word. And so we worship you by listening, by paying attention, by focusing in on the truth that we bring to bear through the Word of God. We pray that our hearts would be not only open to what you say, but open to change that your Spirit would bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you know that things won't make you happy? Stuff doesn't make you happy. In fact, truth be told, stuff doesn't matter. Things don't really matter when it comes down to what life is all about. Having said that, your attitude toward things does matter, and it matters a lot, whether you have a tight grip or a light touch on stuff, things. You could ask Carl Coleman. Carl Coleman was driving his car to work one day, and there was a woman passing him who got too close to his car, and she snagged her fender with his fender, and the car's hit, They pulled over off the side. The woman got out, admitted it was her fault, surveyed the damage. She started weeping. Because she said, the car is less than two days old. How am I going to face my husband? I just crashed the new car. Mr. Coleman was sympathetic, but said, look, we have to exchange registration and license numbers, which they did. And as she reached into the glove box to get the documents, the first thing that tumbled out was a note written in heavy masculine scrawl, obviously by her husband, that said, in case of accident, honey, just remember, it's you I love, not this car. Now there's a guy who understood having a light touch rather than a tight grip on things. The name of this message this morning I'm calling Affluenza. Affluenza. And I know it sounds like it's a misspelled word or it's not a word, but it actually is a word that came about in the 1970s and really was put into dictionaries around the mid to late 1990s. You know that it's a a takeoff from another familiar word, influenza. You all know what that is. It's the flu. And the flu, influenza, is a highly contagious viral infection of the respiratory system. Well, affluenza is a highly contagious social, spiritual condition. It's the result of overabundance. And as I mentioned, it was brought into English usage. You can even look it up in modern dictionaries, affluenza, from a 1997 television documentary on this subject. So I found a couple of definitions of affluenza. Let me read them to you. Number one. Affluenza is a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. 
Number two, the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. One observer noted that in American culture, we are three times wealthier than we were in the 1950s. We're three times wealthier as a nation than the 1950s. Yet there's more stress and deeper depression today than in the 1950s. Now why is that? We've gotten more stuff, more things, more affluent. Why not a corresponding joy? Well, maybe it's like the very wealthy man who went to see the very wise rabbi who lived simply. The rich man walked in, had a bad attitude on life, very discontented, went to see the rabbi. The rabbi pointed to a window and said, what do you see? So the man looked through the window and he said, I see some men, I see a few women, I see a bunch of kids playing. Then the rabbi pointed to the other side of the room at a mirror and said, now look at that, what do you see? The wealthy man frustrated said, well, obviously I see myself. Ah, very interesting, said the wise rabbi. Because you see, the window has glass. The mirror also has glass, but with a thin lining of silver over the top. No sooner is the silver applied than one ceases to see others and sees only himself. In Exodus chapter 20, Verse 17 is our text this morning. It is the tenth commandment, is the final of the ten commandments. And it reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Right off the bat, we see that this commandment is different than the previous commandments. The other commandments right before this were much shorter and very concise. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Here, there's a list. It's more explicit. There's a list of seven things we're not to covet. Now, you might say, Skip, this message has nothing at all to do with me. I don't want a donkey. I don't care about an ox. And I don't want a female or a male slave. But you could actually take all of these seven in the list and put them into one of three modern categories. Things, people, and cultural status. That's what they all deal with. Things, people, and cultural status. Now, most of us would never put coveting in God's top ten. Of the top ten things that God would warn people about, why would He put coveting there? See, a lot of people would say, that's not as bad as murder, that's not as bad as adultery. Or is it? In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow! Ouch! 
in that same category of what many would say are heinous crimes or sins, coveting is put. So let's mull over affluenza this week. Let's mull over it not only this week, but let's mull over it this week and next week, shall we? Because this week, I'd like to talk to you about the cause of affluenza and the curse of affluenza. And then next week, the cure for this highly contagious virus. And basically what we're going to do today and next time is compare two different approaches to life. One is the approach of covetousness and the other is the approach of contentment. We're going to see that in the next two weeks. Well, let's go back to our text and let's discover the cause of affluenza, which is written right here in verse 17, and that is covetousness. It says, you shall not covet. The Hebrew word is hamad. And it means to strongly desire or delight in. Okay, now doesn't that sound weird? You shall not strongly desire or delight in. You say, what kind of a commandment is that? What's so bad about strongly desiring or delighting in? Well, actually, that's a good question to ask. Because the word hamad is a neutral word. It can mean something good or something bad, something positive or something negative. And both are used in the Bible. For instance, on the positive side, in Psalm 68, verse 16, speaking of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Bible says, This is the mountain which God desires, Hamad, to dwell in. It's used in a good light. Or in Psalm 19, verse 10, where it talks about the laws, the commandments of God. It says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Hamad is the word used for desired. But typically, usually in the Bible, it has a negative connotation. And the way it's usually written is that the object one desires is off limits. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25, Solomon is coaching his son to stay away from loose, immoral women, i.e. the prostitute. And he says, do not desire or lust after her beauty in your heart. Hamad, that's the word used. It can mean good. It can also mean bad. And it goes all the way back to Genesis in the garden. When God put that tree right there in the garden said, hands off, don't touch it, don't go near it. And Eve, the Bible says, saw that the tree was not only good for food, but here's the word, desirous to make one wise, chamad. So a working definition then of coveting would be this. The basic idea is craving or having an inordinate desire for something delightful. We have, all of us, God-given desires. Desire to eat, desire to drink, desire to reproduce, a desire to acquire things. All of those are God-given desires. Squirrels hoard nuts for the winter. Birds collect sticks and mud to build nests for the young. But there is a huge difference between survival and superabundance. That's the idea here. Not survival, but superabundance. Mark Twain once said, Our necessities never equal our wants. Hey, did you know that about a hundred years ago, 
the average American could produce a list of 70 wants, 70 things the average American said, I want, this is what I want in my life. Today, you know what the average American wants? How many things would you figure? 100? 200? 500 wants. From 100 years ago, we've jumped from 70 to now 500 wants. We all know who Dennis the Menace is, right? America's favorite brat, five-year-old. Dennis the Menace in one of the cartoons was thumbing through a Sears catalog. The catalog came into the house, the Mitchell house, and he was going through it. And Mom and Dad entered the room, and Dennis the Menace looked up and said, Wow, this catalog has lots of things I never even knew I wanted. Speaking of catalogs with stuff you, you don't know you wanted, have you ever seen a Sky Mall magazine in an airplane? Have you ever wondered who thinks up these things? I don't know anybody who's gotten one and bought stuff from it. Maybe you have, and I don't want to offend you. But I look through some of these things, and I'm thinking, who's doing this? Who wants, for instance, on page 42, the animatronic Elvis? <laughs> Got to have Elvis in your house prominently displayed so you can sing ain't nothing but a hound you gotta have that (laughs) gotta have that or toward the end of the book I found this Bigfoot garden sculpture (laughs) who needs a dog when you can have Bigfoot and it's only a hundred bucks or how about this one sumo wrestler sculpture and glass top table That's what everybody needs in their living room. Big fat dude holding a piece of glass on his head. Got to have that. (laughs) Now, the 10th commandment, I want you to notice, is different from all the previous nine. Because the 10th commandment can be broken with nobody seeing it. It's all inward, isn't it? Coveting is an inner thing. It's not an outward action. Murdering is outward. Adultery is outward. Stealing is outward. Lying is outward. Coveting, however, is an inside job. And here's what's interesting about the 10th commandment. It's this commandment that wiped Paul the apostle out. It's this commandment that completely destroyed Paul's sense of self-righteousness, which at one time he had. You remember how Paul talks about his background, his pedigree, his list of honors in Philippians chapter 3. He says, let me tell you about myself. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. But listen to this. Concerning the righteousness which comes through the law, I was blameless. Wow. Here's a guy who said, on my report card, as far as keeping the law, I got straight A's. I was blameless. I was perfect. That is, it seems, until Paul was thinking about this last commandment, the 10th commandment, the coveting commandment. And this is the commandment that wiped him out, that diffused any sense of self-righteousness at all. And he writes about that. I want you to look at what he says in Romans chapter 7. Would you turn keeping a marker where we're at in Exodus 20, to Romans chapter 7. Again, this is autobiographical. This is Paul speaking about himself, his life, 
Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Why? Because he realized that this commandment deals with something inside, not something outside like the previous nine. In other words, Paul is saying, all I got to do to break this commandment is open my eyes in the morning. I don't even have to get out of bed. I don't have to leave the house. I can open my eyes and start thinking. And if I think inordinately, I can break this commandment. So at one time, I was blameless. I was perfect. Then I studied this commandment. Sin revived and I died. It killed me. It produced such a conviction of sin in his own life, this 10th commandment. Well, that's the cause of affluenza covetousness. Now, what I want to do the rest of our time is consider the curse that affluenza brings. And it really is a curse because it reveals something about us. It ruins something around us and it ripens into something else. First of all, coveting reveals dissatisfaction with God's provision. Look back at Exodus 20, verse 17. Notice the list in verse 17. Your neighbor's house, wife, servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, here's what a covetous person will do. A covetous person will compare what he or she has with what somebody else has, their neighbor. And in making that comparison, we'll feel shortchanged, unhappy. In effect, saying, God hasn't been as good to me as he has been to that person. And he might start thinking, I deserve a better wife. I deserve a better husband. I deserve a better home. I deserve a better job. I deserve more recognition. They have it and I don't. And you see... A covetous person reveals they're dissatisfied with what God has provided for them. You all know what David said about this. It's the most famous psalm in all of the book of Psalms. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or you could translate it, covet. Because the Lord is in charge of my life, He's my personal shepherd. I don't want anything else. I don't need anything else. I know he'll provide. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But you see, a coveting sheep really is a disgrace to his shepherd. It's revealing what I think about how that shepherd cares for me as his sheep. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 13, same idea. Let your conduct be without covetousness. 
And be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's somebody who is independent of stuff, things, materialism, because he or she realizes the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He himself said, I will never leave or forsake you. Speaking of sheep and shepherds, there's a great book. I'm going to recommend it. It's old. It's been out a long time. I remember when it was first published back in 19 whatever. It's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And it's written by a shepherd going through Psalm 23 as somebody who's kept sheep and he writes about his own experiences. And Philip Keller writes about one particular sheep, a ewe, a beautiful gal, one of his little sheep. He says, one of the most attractive sheep that I ever had was this one. Her body was beautifully proportioned. She had a strong constitution and an excellent coat of wool. Her head was clean. She was alert, well set with bright eyes. But in spite of all of these attractive attributes, she had one pronounced fault. She was restless, discontented. She was a fence crawler. Maybe that's a good definition of a covetous person, a fence crawler. Now, when you have fence crawlers who say, God is my shepherd, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, but they're always complaining, imagine what that sounds like to an unbeliever, the uninitiated, looking in and watching the believer. The unbeliever is going to naturally think, if he's a logical person, why should I follow your Jesus? You're never happy. You're never contented. You're always complaining that you don't have this or do that. So it's very revealing. Covetousness reveals a dissatisfaction with God's provision. Now, some of you who still think that if you had more stuff, you'd be happier, listen up. Happiness is never from the outside in. It's always from the inside out. And you know what? There's actually been test case after test case for years on this very subject of happiness. People take it upon themselves to study that subject. And people who study happiness have discovered, whether they're sociologists or psychologists or social scientists, they have a word they call adaptation, a principle called adaptation, that says you will always return to a set point of happiness, irrespective of your circumstances. So if you get a lot of stuff, you'll always return to the set point. If you have bad things happen to you and you lose a lot of stuff, you'll eventually reach equilibrium at that set point of happiness. It's not outside, it's inside. One author writes this. Most people believe that if their real income were to suddenly double, they would feel a lot happier. And they would. For the first week or two. After that, the happiness would have perceptibly diminished, and within six months or a year, they would only be slightly happier than before the financial improvement. Interesting. You see, this is why affluenza is a curse. It lies to you. It convinces you that happiness really is from the outside in rather than from the inside out. It is not. 
Well, it's also a curse because coveting ruins relationships that you have with other people. Go back to our verse. Notice the whole force of the commandment in verse 17 is in the word, your neighbor's your neighbor's or his. That's the whole force of the command. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, not just any house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor. Seven times your neighbor is mentioned. Here's the point. How are you ever going to love your neighbor as yourself if you're coveting what your neighbor has? It's impossible. See, here's the principle. Whenever what your neighbor has becomes the object of your desire, then your neighbor will become the object of your disdain. Because he has it and you don't. I'll say that again. Whenever what your neighbor owns, has, becomes the object of your desire, then your neighbor becomes the object of your disdain. Easily proven in the scripture, just think of King David, who saw another man's wife. And what Uriah had, which was Bathsheba, he wanted. She became the object of his desire. So Uriah the Hittite became the object of David's disdain. And his first order of business was to kill him. Back in 1975, some of you will remember that a girl, a woman named Lynette Frome, tried to assassinate in Sacramento, California, President Gerald Ford. Lynette Frome was part of the Manson gang, the Charles Manson family, they called it. She had a bad childhood. She, um, was very attracted to the philosophy of Charles Manson. And she was being interviewed by the press. And she said, what attracted me to Charles Manson was this philosophy. And I quote, get whatever you want whenever you want it. That is your God-inspired right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you think that you have some cosmic right to have something that somebody else has that you don't have, whenever you start thinking that it's your cosmic right to have it, you'll start coveting it. And as soon as you start coveting it, it just messes up your relationship with other people. They become the object of your disdain. Your attitude toward them changes. Why should they have it and I don't? In Romans chapter 12, there's a verse of Scripture I want you just to think about. I'll say it. You'll recognize it. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Remember that one? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Which do you find it harder to do? Do you find it harder to weep with people who weep or rejoice with those who rejoice? I'll answer it. It's a lot harder to rejoice with people who are rejoicing than it is to weep with people who are weeping. I'll give you an example. Somebody comes up and says, I'm just so bummed out. I lost this or I lost that person. My life is really hard. You'll be the first one to say, oh, brother, oh, sister, I'm so sorry. Let's pray. You'll get down right down to their level. It's easier for you to do that because it happened to them, not you. But, but, let's say you're in great need Your car is a beat-up old jalopy, should have been towed 20 years ago. But you're driving it. That's what God has provided. You can't afford anything else. Okay, somebody comes to second service after eating the pancakes and says to you, (laughs) says to you, hey, brother, rejoice with me. This week, 
out of nowhere, somebody gave me a brand new car. What do you do? (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God. It's harder for you to rejoice in that rejoicing than to weep in that other weeping. That's our human nature. Bob James of Paint Rock, Texas, gives a great illustration. He said he was out in his yard one day and he put, he put ant poison in a circle around an anthill. He wanted to kill the ants. And this is what he said. Thinking that the tiny granules of poison were food, the ants began to pick them up and carry them throughout the colony. I returned later to see how well the poison was working. Hundreds of stinging ants were carrying the poison down into their hill. Then I noticed a break in the circle of poison. Some of the poison was moving in the opposite direction, away from the hill. Some smaller, non-stinging ants had found this food and were stealing it from their ant neighbors. Thinking they were getting the other ants' treasure, they were unwittingly poisoning themselves. That's exactly how affluenza works. That's exactly how covetousness operates. Whenever we see someone with more stuff, beware. Because at that very moment, depending on what goes on in our heart, rejoicing or weeping, we start poisoning ourselves. Finally, it's a curse because coveting ripens into other forms of sin. You see, affluenza does not stay a contained virus. It spreads. It affects other things. It's never stagnant. It always grows into some other form. It is a contagion. See, if your heart says, I deserve a better wife, or I deserve a better husband, you might be looking for one. Or berating the one you have presently. If your heart says, I deserve a better home, then you might think I need to work three jobs and sacrifice any relationship with any meaningful people just to get the stuff. Or you might pressure your husband into working more jobs because you deserve better. If your heart says, I deserve higher status, then you'll be competing with other people around you. It never stays just coveting. It leads to other things. Listen carefully to Paul's admonition to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Did you hear that? It doesn't say, but those who are rich, those who desire. You can be dirt poor and desire to be rich. Those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. How many times have you heard that misquoted? Money is the root of all evil. Uh Uh-uh. It's the love of money. And people even who don't have it can love it for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And now I want to give you some examples of people who coveted and it didn't stop there. It led to something else. First is Lot. Lot's coveting 
led to selfishness. He saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. That's nice land. And that coveting led to selfishness. That was Lot. Second, Achan. Remember Achan? He really was Achan when it was all said and done. Achan was in that first battle of Jericho when Joshua and the children of Israel conquered the land. And God said, in this first battle, when Jericho falls, all of the plunder, you don't get it. All goes to me. You all dedicate it to me and my purpose. It would be used later on for the tabernacle and the temple. But there was a guy named Achan. And his coveting led to thievery. By his own admission, he said in Joshua, I saw and I coveted. And I took Lot, Achan. Here's a third. David, his coveting led to adultery and a murder. Here's a fourth. Judas, his coveting led to bearing false witness, betraying his master and suicide. It never just stays coveting. It always grows into something else. No wonder Jesus warns in Luke chapter 12, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. That's the premise we began this message with. When I said, how many of you know that things don't satisfy? Things really don't matter. But what does matter is your attitude toward those things. Jesus said a man's life doesn't consist of what he owns in the abundance of things that he possesses. So, affluenza is a contagious disease. Covetousness is sin. But as one commentator said, it's not just sin, it's stupid. It really is stupid. It's stupid because it says happiness is from the outside in. When all along you know that's not the truth, that happiness is from the inside out. Somebody once said there's two ways to get rich. One is to have a lot of possessions, and the other is to have few needs. So how do we get there? How do we arrive there? What's the cure for this virus? That's what we want to look at next time when we take part two of this, the cure for affluenza. In the meantime, in the meantime, maybe there's a note you need to write. Something like, in case of accident, honey, remember it's you I love and not the car. A note like that. Honey, it's you I love and not the TV remote. (laughs) Honey, it's you I love and not the job, the stuff, the more. It's you I love. I love you. The relationships are more important. More than that, maybe it's time to say, Lord, it's you I love and not the stuff. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, Jesus said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, that's what you call the bottom line, isn't it? What if you have everything and you lose your own soul? Imagine a person has the biggest piece of real estate, oceanfront property, very wealthy, has no needs, dies and goes to hell forever. Wow, what a good life. Really? What profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses his own soul? The soul is much more important than the stuff. So where are you with the stuff? Where are you with the soul? Is the shepherd 
your shepherd is the master, your master is the savior, your savior. Are you rich spiritually? Can you say the Lord is my shepherd? I don't need anything. I trust him. It's the first step toward true wealth. Let's just pause a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we think about how good you are, how good you've been. We think of all that you promise, all you have already provided. And we think of the future. After this earth, for those of us who know you and had all of our sins taken care of at the cross, there are such riches, wealth, in heaven that we are going to enjoy that it's impossible to tell all or understand or comprehend all of it. And so, Lord, we're, we're left with here. We're left with here and now. And here and now, you call men and women by their own free choice to make their own free decisions on a daily basis of what's important and what's not important, what they want and what they say they don't want or need. Those are very powerful choices. Lord, I just wonder if if there aren't some who have come today who haven't yet honestly invited you to be their shepherd. They haven't really seen a need for a Savior to forgive them of their sin. And thus, the result is they're living very unfulfilled and unsatisfied lives. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have a solution for that. It's the choice of all choices to be made. It's a choice to turn from all of that stuff, all of those values, all of that past, and to enter into a relationship of faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.